morning to the book of Matthew, chapter 11, if you would please. The book of Matthew, chapter 11. We're going to be looking at verses 2 through 12. 12 is going to be our intended destination. Want to preach from there, but we'll see what the Lord has for us this morning. Matthew chapter 11, verse 12. We are surrounded with violence, and we find this peculiar scripture in spoken to us by the Lord after he speaks of John the Baptist, who himself was surrounded by violence, and Christ himself was surrounded by violence. And there's a word that is said, there's something that is taught here this morning. We want to look and see what it is and what it's not from the word of God. The Lord says in verse 12, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence and the violent take it by force. Let's pray together. Almighty God and our Father, we pray that you would grant this morning that as you appeared in your the person of your only begotten Son, that showed us in him your glory, and since you have shown us the same Christ in your holy word, We ask that you would grant that our eyes may be fixed on him this morning and that we may not go astray, that we might not turn to the right nor to the left, that we might not be led here or there, that we might not be led by after the wicked inventions and the subtleties of Satan, his schemes and devices are enticed through the weakness of our flesh to the things of this world. But we pray that we may continue firm in the obedience of faith and persevere in it through our whole entire life until we are fully transformed into the image of your glory which we now know in part through Christ our only Lord and Savior. It's in his name and for his sake that we pray. Amen and amen. In verse 2 of John chapter, I mean of Matthew chapter 11, I'm sorry. John hears while he's in prison of Christ. He hears of his fame, of what he's doing. And so being in prison, he sends his disciples with this particular question, which you find in verse 3. Are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? And I think he asked this question for two reasons. A lot of theologians say it was for one reason or the other, but I think he asked this question for two reasons. One of the reasons was the fact that John's disciples had heard him preaching about the kingdom. And from the things that he had said, and they had heard him say, they were somewhat confused. Their eschatology has messed them up some. They also had a greater respect, I think, for John the Baptist than they did for Jesus of Nazareth. You remember the concern that they showed in John chapter 3, and you can read it when you go home, verses 22 through 30, 
when they learned that Jesus and his disciples were on the other side of the river baptizing more people than John and his disciples were. They were very concerned about that. Lord, did you know about this? And John used that opportunity to make a declaration for Christ. And in the midst of that declaration, he told them, you remember and you are my witnesses that I have not, that I've told you over and over and everybody else that I am not the Christ. That I am simply a forerunner, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. I'm not the Christ. And remember also that I told you that he must increase, but I must decrease. So remember that. And they were encouraged in that way. And I believe also that while John has not fallen, he has stumbled. He is in prison. He's wondering why he's in prison and things are going on the way they are. And the cause of that we're going to look at in just a moment, I think. But then we're moved to verses 4 through 5, if you'll read that with me. And Jesus answered them as they asked him this question, shall we look for another? Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. And the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. That's his answer. And the Lord Jesus Christ shows himself to be the Messiah by his miracles. Miracles that are true. Miracles that are visible. Proofs of his divinity. John's disciples saw and they also heard. They heard the miracles as, as people spoke that couldn't speak. They saw the miracles that were being fulfilled. And what they saw and heard was a fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 35 verses 5 through 6. In Isaiah chapter 61 verse 1, actually the Lord is quoting those very verses. But the problem was that they thought in their ideas of the coming of the Messiah because of they had heard John's preaching, they thought that the Messiah was going to bring in a carnal kingdom, a physical kingdom, a kingdom where that they would beat up the Romans and put Israel on, on top of all the nations of the world. For John has, has already preached, look, you got the, He's coming to baptize us while I baptize in water. He's going to baptize with fire. He's going to baptize you in the Holy Ghost. And the axe is already laid to the root of the tree. And the winnowing fork is already in the threshing floor. And he's about to separate the wheat from the chaff. And he's going to, he's going to clean house. But I'm in prison. They had thought in that way. They nor John understood that the, what the Lord had already said about Messiah's mission when he came back from his temptation in the wilderness and he speaks to them out of Luke chapter 4 and he's reading out of Isaiah again when they hand him the scroll to preach and he reads verse 18 out of the scroll and says these words, 18 through 21, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind. He sent me to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And He rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. 
And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. John nor his disciples understood this. And so Jesus sends a message, I think, and it's simply this. Tell John to read the Scriptures. Tell John to read chapter 35. Tell John to read chapter 61, Isaiah. Tell him that these prophecies are a description of what Messiah's mission is to be. Tell him what you've seen. Tell him what you've heard. Tell him that you see the blind seeing, the lame walking, lepers are being made clean, and the deaf are hearing. People are raised from the dead, and I'm preaching the gospel to the poor. Good news. Tell him that the prophecies of Isaiah are being fulfilled. And then ask John. Tell John these things and ask him if he wants to wait for another. And no, he didn't. We understand that John was but a man, a wonderful man of God, but he was in prison. And maybe in verse 6, we find a mild rebuke. But even though we see it as a mild rebuke, I think it's good advice for us today. In verse 6, he says, And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Or because of me. Be careful. Be careful, John, that you don't let your improper expectations cause you to question me. My mission. We, my friends, need to take counsel from that. We need to guard against dissatisfaction with what the Lord Jesus accomplished in His work, in His work of redemption. In that work, He did everything necessary to save us and to secure eternal blessings for us. But we often hear people resenting the Lord's work. We often resent ourselves what we call His failure. If God has done this, if God would do that, His failure to meet some other expectation other than what He's supposed to. We have all these false expectations. Remember, remember, remember. He is not obligated to do anything for us. If He took my life today, my friends, if He took my wife's life today, or if He took your life today, and He took the breath that He holds, your breath in the palm of His hand that Bill talked about just a few minutes ago, if He took it back to Himself, we would have no reason to do anything but praise Him for what He's already done for us. No reason. Take care. Take care. Not to be offended because of Him. And then when that happened, after that, the Lord Jesus begins to commend John the Baptist. He says in verse 7, As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into 
into the wilderness to see. Did you go out to see a reed shaken by the wind? Is that what you went out to see? It's as if Christ is saying, even though He's asked this question, John is not unstable. John is constant. John is not a man who has his opinions blown about by every wind of doctrine. He's not cast to and fro like a reed. He is not fickle, but constant. He is not like Reuben, unstable as water. Just remember that. That's what he's saying. And then in verse 8, he says, What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. Christ says that John didn't dress himself in silks. He didn't live in fancy courts. Spurgeon says, he's saying he had no courtly manners, no pompous diction or delicate expressions. (laughs) He didn't. And that got him in trouble with royalty, didn't it? He spoke the truth. And... He didn't dress in the silks and ties that we <laughs> nothing wrong with ties. I love ties. I love these. I love to wear a suit. Man, then Christ says something else in verse nine. What did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you. And more than a prophet. Wow. More than a prophet. Christ doesn't only number John with the prophets, but He elevates him above the chief of all the prophets. That's an amazing thing for our Lord to say. I think John is not looked at nearly closely, not closely, and not not close enough over even the chief of the prophets. And then He says in verse 10, This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. The Lord commends John as his forerunner, who prepared the way before him. He was a morning star that John had read about and was proclaiming the coming of the Son of Righteousness, out of Malachi chapter 4, verse 2. Proclaiming the coming of the Son of Righteousness. And then he says something in verse 11. I thought this was so striking, leading to what he's going to say. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. There is none greater born of woman. Now we understand that's by ordinary generation. Christ was born of a woman, but not by ordinary generation. None greater. He stood out among everybody else. Moses or Jeremiah or Isaiah or Micah or Malachi. He stood out. No one greater than Him. He stood out for the quality or the dignity of His office, for the 
truth that He proclaimed and the very clearness, the clearness of His doctrine. He was very clear about what He said. And so, we get to our text, finally. Verse 12. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. John the Baptist was a very, very, very zealous preacher. He was, if you will, a son of thunder. And in his preaching, people, because of his preaching, in the midst of his preaching, people begin to be awakened. They begin to discover their sins. Understand, he's talking to a very religious group of people. He's talking to God's people. His ministry worked upon the conscience of men and His voice was like a trumpet. It was clear and there was no uncertain sound coming from John the Baptist. It was with power that He preached the doctrine of repentance. With power, He said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He came hewing and cutting down men's sins and then He preached Christ. And I use the word hewing as well as cutting in that sentence because it needs to be said. Hewing and cutting. The word hewing is like somebody taking an axe and bringing a heavy blow against something. A heavy blow. And there was cutting. What it was, my friends, was something Bill was praying about this morning. First comes the cutting and the vinegar of the law and then the balm and the wine of the gospel. That's how it works. This preaching calls men to vigorously, if you will, violently seek after heaven. I've got some quotes in the front of my Bible that I... I get goosebumps thinking about John the Baptist. I got some quotes in the front of my Bible written from Isaac Watts and also, uh, Thornwell, John Henley Thornwell, with respect to what I was saying just then. Isaac Watts is writing a preface to a letter from, or a book, if you will, from Jonathan Edwards about the great awakening that it was happening in America, which actually saved America. And the Jonathan Edwards book was entitled A Faithful Narrative of the Surprising Work of God in 1737. And Isaac Watts writes in the front of that these words, Wheresoever God works with power for salvation upon the minds of men, there will be some discoveries of a sense of sin, of the danger of the wrath of God and the all-sufficiency of His Son Jesus to relieve us under all our spiritual wants and distresses. Isn't that wonderful? And then John Henley Thornwell says in volume 2 of his collected writings on page 100, the law must be applied with power to the conscience or the preciousness of grace will be very inadequately known. The preciousness of grace. If the law is not applied with power, people's conscience aren't pricked, their hearts hearts aren't cut, then they're not going to know what God has done and the preciousness of grace. I know so many 
who don't understand what I'm talking about. The preciousness of grace that has brought them out of death into life, out of darkness into light. And so we find that the Baptist, my friends, was not preaching to please, but he was preaching that men might profit by discovering their sins. He was preaching not to show his eloquence. I want you to think of a mirror with me, if you would, for just a moment. What is the best kind of mirror? It's not the one that is pretty and ornate with all these wood cuttings around it like you go into some bedrooms and the wife's got her vanity <laughs> table. That's the name. I wish we need to rename it maybe. The vanity where she's making up herself and she's got this, these beautiful mirrors and all kinds of ornate wood around it. And the wood even has jewels, maybe some gold or something like that surrounding it. But the one that is the best mirror is not that one, but the one which shows the truest reflection of our face. That's the best mirror. You ever tried on some britches or something at uh, TJ Maxx? You go in there and the room got mirrors all over the place and got these lights and you put on those britches and boy, you look pretty good. Yeah. And then you get home. <laughs> I don't know what kind of mirror they got in there. But you get home and you put those same britches on in front of your mirror and all these lights and you go, ah! I didn't get a true reflection there. Uh, I know a lot of ladies that spend as much time taking stuff back as they do bringing it home. We should desire... The preaching, the teaching, and the reading. And we are blessed in these times right now. There's so much preaching and teaching and good books out. R.C. Sproul, John MacArthur, and the list goes on of men who are true to God's Word that are just projected all over the earth right now. And so we should desire the kind of preaching and teaching and reading that gives us the truest discovery of our sins and shows us the truest state of our heart. We should desire that. What a mercy if you desire that, friends. John the Baptist was a burning and shining light. He, he, the Word of God, His doctrine burned in Him and His light His life shone with the light of that doctrine that was burning in His very bones. Like Isaiah, wasn't it Jeremiah? No, it was Jeremiah. One of them said, it's like fire in my bones. I can't contain it. He saw the preciousness of grace. Peter also, he was filled with the spirit of zeal. In his first sermon, I love to read his sermons in Acts In his first sermon, he was filled with the spirit of zeal. And when he preached, he humbled those who heard him. He humbled them for their sins. And then he opened to them with the keys of the kingdom, that the kingdom of heaven that had been given to him by Christ. He opened to them after humbling them for their sins with a fountain of life which comes only through and from the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Acts 2, verse 37. He preached... And they said, and the Bible says, the Word of God says, and they were cut to the heart. Cut to the heart. That was a violent force. That word came with 
vigor, with violence. I don't think vigor, Hendrickson translates the word vigor there. Well, I don't think vigorous, vigorousness or vigor quite captures the height and the, and the greatness of the emotion that, that was trying to be spoken of by Christ right here. Oh, 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 that God would grant this to us, to our people, to me, and to all that hear, that we cry out when we're, our hearts are cut, our hearts are pricked by the Word of God. We cry out to the man preaching, oh, what must we do? That's amazing that those Jews, those the church heard that and their sins were discovered. What must we do? And Christ told him by the Spirit of God, oh, I use the keys, repent. <laughs> Grant it, Lord. My friends, it is the greatest mercy to have your soul searched. That is the mercy of God. If you had a wound, I ask you, wouldn't your desire be to have it searched to the uttermost? I remember reading years ago about a young, young little boy who, a young boy who fell on a fence post. Some, I can't remember, maybe jumped out of a train and he straddled a fence post and, and he was, had surgery, he got sewed up and they took parts of the fence post out of him and then as time went by, he began to have all kinds of trouble. They thought he was going to die even. And so they had to go back in. They had to open him up again and they had to explore. And when they explored again, guess what they found? They had not searched deep enough. They had not searched the wound to the uttermost. And that, that fence post had cut him and jabbed up in him a piece of his Levi's. <laughs> a foreign object that did not belong there had to be taken out before he could live. That's a true story. I read it in Reader's Digest years ago. You probably remember it about the little boy. Well, what, a, what a blessing it is. What a blessing it is. Who would not be happy to have their souls searched that they might be saved? A lot of people don't like searching preaching. <laughs> they didn't like Jesus. They didn't like John's. Some of them didn't. But then there were others who did. People were coming to John. The kingdom of heaven suffers violence. I want you to know that this is a metaphor from a group that holds out in war. It's a town, a, a castle, a village that will not take and be taken by the greatest storm it comes against. They can, the troopers can storm, but it will not be taken the kingdom of heaven suffers violence. Our life as Christians is military. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 3. We'll just read that one. You can read Ephesians chapter 6 verses 10 through, through, through 20. But just look with me at 2 Corinthians chapter 10. <clears throat> and you probably can quote it. You can probably can quote Ephesians chapter 6 verses 10 through, through 20 and I, and I, and I hope you can and I hope you'll read it and I hope you'll think about it. 
But understand that we are in a war right now, my friends, and we're going to be in a war against the flesh, against the devil, and against the world until this mortality takes on immortality. We're going to be. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not, listen, waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to the obedience to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. That's 2 Corinthians chapter 10 beginning in verse 3. We walk in the flesh. There's all this talk about war. We're not waging war according to the flesh. We have weapons of warfare. We, uh, we, we use divine power. We destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and we fight against lofty opinions that are raised against the knowledge of God. Spiritual wickedness in high places is what we fight against. And we take every thought captive. We've got captives that we bring into obedience. It is a life of war. Who, my friends, that is familiar with the teachings of the Scripture and the history of the church that cannot, that would not say, we are a people of war. Think of your Tyndalls. Think of your Latimers. Think of your Ridleys. Think of your Bradfords. And the list goes on. Who have given their lives. Think of your John the Baptist. But it's okay. Christ is our captain. The gospel is our banner. The graces and the gifts that come to us from our captain are our spiritual weapons of warfare and heaven is only taken by force. The devil, the world, and the flesh will do its best to drive a wedge between you and heaven. It's been working ever since the day you were born again, even before. This has come against you. And one of the devil's greatest allies, don't throw any rocks at me, is your flesh. My flesh. Your greatest, his greatest allies. We know heaven is given to us freely. I know that. But we must contend for it. We're told to contend. Ecclesiastes 9.10 Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. Love the Lord, your God. We quoted it this morning. We talked about it this morning. How are we supposed to do that? With all our heart. With all our strength. With all our mind. Taking every thought captive. Giving our greatest strength to this Loving God, and not only that, loving my neighbor as myself. That takes fighting. That takes violence against your flesh with the power of the Spirit working in your heart. Do you hear me? Well, Colossians chapter 3, you can look at Romans chapter 12, verse 11. Because of time, we'll have to skip some things. Colossians chapter 3 supports that. Verse 23, I wanted to read that with you this morning. Verse 
3.23. Well, let's start with verse 22 because Paul's talking to people who are in a bad start. Slaves. What do you do, slaves? You don't think there had to be some violence put forth here? Violent to deal with your every thought? With your love that didn't want to love this guy? Didn't want to love your enemy? Slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers. No, but with sincerity of heart. You hear that? Sincerity of heart. The heart, my friends, is a seat of truth. It is a seat of love. With all your heart, that is the seat of love. And nothing else is going to be all unless that's right. Sincere. Sincere. Weigh yourself in that. Weigh yourself against that word. Since all sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord, think about it, and whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Do it heartily, work heartily. My friends, this is a great work we have. A great fight that we're in. A short time. And our Master has urged us towards certain things. Our Captain, to love Him with all our heart, soul, and mind, and our neighbor as ourselves. He's urged us to always, what? Watch and pray. Watch. Stay awake. Stay awake, you guys. Can't you, in, at, at the Garden of Gethsemane, can't you stay awake just an hour with me here? Can't you pray with me in this time? Pray with me. And He, from the throne at the right hand of God, is still saying to us, watch and pray. Why? Because you do not know what hour your Master is going to come. And I pray He doesn't find you asleep. I pray He finds you with oil in your lamp. It's a great work. And so we're to call upon, we are to call upon all the powers of our soul and we are to strive in this matter as it is a matter of life and death for ourselves and for our neighbor. We are not only diligent, but we're violent. Vigorous. Vigorously approaching this. I want to read you something Calvin said in his commentary about this. He says, God raised up John to be the herald of the kingdom of His Son. So the Spirit infused such efficacy into this, His doctrine that it entered deeply into the hearts of men and kindled their zeal. It appears, therefore, that the gospel which comes forward in a manner so sudden and extraordinary, it gains the hearts of men in an unusual manner and it excites in them wonderful emotions and awakens powerful emotions. And he says, we learn from these words what is the true nature and operation of faith. 
It leads men not only to give a cold and indifferent assent when God speaks, but to cherish warm affections toward Him and to rush forward, as it were, with a violent struggle towards God. Towards God. And so, what I want to do is look at what is not meant by violence here. And what is meant by violence? This is not an ignorant violence. We are not violent. We never will be violent. Well, we might. We will. I take that back. It is not an ignorant violence. And we're not violent for what we don't understand. Acts 17.23, Paul's in Athens and he says to these people who are worshiping, As I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. These men were very vigorous, violent in their devotions. He said in verse 22, it says in verse 22, that these people were very religious in every way. But it might be said of these people... As Christ said to the woman at the well of Samaria, you worship, you know not what. The Catholics, the Mormons, the Jehovah's Witness, the Orthodox Jews, they all have a zeal. They do. Just watch them. Witness, if you will, their fastings. Witness, if you will, their, uh, their coming out, their penance. Witness, if you will, these young men paying their own way, walking the streets used to and riding bicycles in little ties and white shirts and khaki pants and peddling the Mormonism on doors everywhere they went. They have a zeal doing penance, doing, making journeys and to bow before certain things and do all kinds of things, but it is without knowledge. And so, it is not to be an ignorant violence. Now, this doesn't either mean a bloody violence. And I think this is twofold. We're not talking about a bloody violence. You do not lay hands upon yourself. God has put our soul in our body. And we are to stay to stay until God by death lets us out. Our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 19 through 20 and others. And when we offer violence to these bodies, we destroy God's temple. The Puritans say this in reading their dialogue about this particular subject, the lamp of life must burn as long as there is all to feed it. We don't take it with our own hands. It also excludes the bloody violence of taking the life of another. Oh my. And there's too much of that in our day. No sin has a louder voice than blood. Breaks my heart. The voice says God to Cain. 
The voice of your brother's blood cries to me from the ground. Think of how loud the cry is from the soil in America. Of all the innocent blood, for all the innocent blood that has been shed. 63 million since 1973. And God hears the cry of one. Do you think he hasn't heard this? Do you think it's not an important matter? I can't stay there. I, I, we could, but we won't. We find in the Scriptures that if a man willfully attacks another to kill him by cunning, you shall take him from my altar that he may die. But we have legislation passed to protect those who murder You could look all through the Old Testament or even the New at the examples. Joab, a man that was a man of blood, he was killed by Solomon. Even though he cried for mercy. Even though he had a hold of the horns of the altar. It's simply, I want to see what violence in this text doesn't include. It doesn't include burning, choking, and drowning that Bloody Mary did. Taking the homes and lives. The 2,000 ministers in England that were lost their living in 1662, ejected from their pulpits, put sent to prison because they wouldn't believe in the doctrine of transubstantiation. Or agree with the Church of England's mandates of particular things. The violence, though, that is meant here is a holy violence. And the first thing we're violent for is the truth. Yes. What is that, says Pilate? Well, let me tell you. It's either the Word of God, which is the Word of truth, which is contained in the Scriptures of the Old and New Testament that Christ quoted, or it is either those doctrines which are taken from this Word and agree with it. For instance, the doctrine of the Trinity Creation of free grace only, of justification by the blood of Christ only, of regeneration, right, regeneration, of resurrection of the dead, and of the life of glory. Those truths we must be violent for, either by preaching and living for them, or either being martyred for them. And you could be. Are you ready? Is there sincerity of heart here? I believe God will grant us grace. But we need to examine ourselves, as we're going to see in just a moment. Truth. We are to be violent for truth. It's glorious. It's precious. It comes from God, who is the Creator of heaven and earth, who is the Ancient of Days. It is pure, according to Psalm 119, 140. It is the very star which leads us to Christ. We can compare it as the psalmist does in 12.6 of Psalms. We can compare it to silver refined seven times. God who is true, my friends, is on the side of truth. And it will prevail. It might be uh, fought against, 
It might be opposed, but it's not going to decompose, if you will. The heavens will be dissolved according to 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 12, but the word of the Lord remains forever. We've been born again, not of a corruptible seed, but incorruptible by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. That is the seed, the word of God's truth. And so, we see the wonderful effect of truth here. It is the seed of the new birth. John, James chapter 1 verse 8 and First Peter that I just quoted just a second ago. Go. Verses 23 through 25. But let's just look at James chapter 1 verse 18. Of His own will, He brought us forth. How? By the word of truth. <laughs> that we should be a kind of first fruits of His creatures. Seed of the new birth. Truth sanctifies them. Our Lord's praying for us in John chapter 17. And He says in verse 17, Sanctify them in the truth as He prayed for us. And then He says, Your word is truth. Truth shows us our blemishes like a mirror. And truth also washes them away. And so truth then sets us free. You shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. That's why we're violent for it, my friends. Truth is comforting then. It's like a wine that cheers us. It's comforting. The psalmist says in Psalm 119.50, This is my comfort in my affliction. We read from Isaiah this morning to receive comfort in the affliction that surrounds us because of the violence that surrounds us. And this really does work this way. It's a living word, friends. It's a living word. It really does work. This is my comfort in my affliction. Your word or your promises give me life. Your promises quicken me. It is the same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwelling in us, quickening our mortal bodies to have hope. Because He, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, according to His great mercy, has caused us to be born again to what? A living hope. 1 Peter 1.3 By the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To obtain an inheritance, friend. It's yours. It's ours. God's given it to us. I can never say enough to honor truth. Truth, says another Puritan, this is a wonderful quote. Truth is the best flower in the church's crown. We have not a richer jewel to trust God with than our souls, nor He a richer jewel to trust us with than His truth. He's given us His truth and we're to hide it in our hearts. We're to burn with it and our life shines with it. That's what makes us the salt of the earth. Truth then is our banner of honor. Truth sets us apart from a false church. It is the strength of both the church and a nation. Our military, as we sang this morning, and we sung that song, I about shouted... 
Our military does not strengthen us as much as truth does. Truth is the greatest strength of a kingdom. And once we part with it, we become as Samson with his hair cut off and his eyes blinded. We should be violent for truth. We're told to contend for the faith. Contend with your last ounce is what he's talking about. A vigor, your last ounce of strength. You know what it is to contend? You ever contended with somebody? In a knockdown drag out? Contend. Contend, contend, contend for the truth. For the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints, Jude 3. My friends, if truth departs from a church, or if truth departs, we can write these words on America's tombstone, the glory is departed. I want you to look at 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 10 with me right quick. I'm going to press this just a little bit farther. 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 10. Well, let's start with verse 9. And it fits the things I've been saying. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. He's calling on the brothers like John was writing to, or preaching to the brothers, like Christ was preaching to the brothers, like Peter was preaching to the brothers. Brothers, be more diligent to make your calling and election sure, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fail. For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's the way to heaven. We don't preach on not going to heaven. Second Peter 1.10 was where that came from. And so what are we saying? We must be violent even for our own salvation. It's kind of like being anxiously careful. The enemy sets minds. You know, and if you know there's minds out there, and the minds are set, and you're walking through this earth. You go, we don't. We we are guilty of praying, Lord, lead us not into temptation, and then walking right into it. Lord, lead us not into temptation, and we walk right into it. Mind explodes. There must be a resolve, a resolution. Or a purpose of the will. We must feel our purpose strong within us. Strong within us. Psalm 119, 106. Psalm 19, 106. 119, 106. 
You ever read Jonathan Edwards' works? You ever read his resolve? Resolve to, resolve to, resolve to. This is what I'm going to do. This is what I'm doing. And I feel my purpose within me, strong within me. This is a resolution of my resolve that this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to fight the good fight of faith. I'm going to take up the weapons of my warfare that's been given to me by my captain, the graces of God, the artillery that is given to me and put on the armor that is given to me. First of all, belting myself with a belt of truth. <laughs> Psalm 119.106 I have sworn an oath and confirm it to keep your righteous rules. Are you a member of this church? You have sworn an oath. You swore an oath before me and Bill, nearly everybody in here, I think every one of you, and Kirk Fearing and Mark O'Neill before this church, before God Almighty, that you would resolve to follow Christ. Your purpose of heart is to follow Christ. To take every thought captive in obedience to Him. Whatever is in the way, even if it's a lion, I'm going to encounter it. Resolved. I am resolved. Come what will, I will have heaven. And so what do we do? We set our face like flint toward Jerusalem, regardless of the dangers, regardless of the trials, regardless of the contempt that is just cast upon us. We will face it. Whatever it costs, I will follow Christ. Understanding that this is only done in the strength of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the only way you can do it. Understand also that we cannot be half resolved. No halves here. You're either cold or hot, friend. The will to be saved and the will to follow sin, that makes it impossible to be violent for heaven. Why? Well, for one reason, you're that reed tossed about all the time. You go one way, then you go another way, but you find yourself not actually violent for either way. If our voyage to the kingdom, to the holy land, in our voyage, our affections are very involved. The affections, have you ever noticed they're violent things? They are. They are on fire with passion, longing after God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Psalm 42, 2. When shall I come and appear before God? Thirst, thirst, thirst. Why did he use thirst? Well, he used thirst because we're more impatient with thirst than we are with hunger. We can't. Live without water as long as we can live without food. Can you get the picture? Thirst. My soul thirst for God, for the living God. Affections are like wings on a bird which make us fly after glory. They, says the psalmist, 
No, says Isaiah 40, 31. They that wait upon the Lord shall, shall renew their strength and they shall mount up with wings of eagles. They shall walk as your one and not be weary. They shall walk and they will not faint. Driving them is their thirst for the glory of God. And it causes you to mount up with wings like an eagle. When's the last time you soared with that affection for God in your closet, in your prayer time, in your Bible reading time, in your time alone in the car? Where the affections are stirred up, there is the offering of holy violence for heaven. Then, you say, oh God, I see you. I see the preciousness of your grace and the blood of Christ covering me. Oh, I don't understand your love, but I receive it. Oh God, thank you for your love. And you say, oh Lord, I present my body to you, my mind, my will, my everything that I am. I pray as a living and holy sacrifice. May it be acceptable unto you. May it be a reasonable service of worship. And may you take me in your hands and shake me and mold me after the image of Christ that I might not be conformed to this world but transformed by your renewing power. Affections are stirred. Shining and burning light. I close with this. And so, we endeavor with all our strength. We strive for salvation as though it is and because it is a matter of life and death for myself and for my neighbor. My friends, it's easy to talk of heaven, but not to get there. We must put forth all our strength and then call for the help of heaven to this work. Pray with me. And so, O oh Lord, Unto Thee do we lift up our souls. It's in You, O God, that we trust. Let us not be ashamed. Let not our enemies triumph over us. But grant that the living Christ, the living Word, would abide in us. And we would run the race with our eyes set continually on Him until we come to that point that we find ourselves in the ultimate place of glory. That glory that we receive just a trace of right now. O God, our God, have mercy upon us. For His name's sake, to Your glory. In Jesus' name. Amen. And to make you stand in the presence of His glory, blameless with great joy. To the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, 
and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Amen.